0: that God is holy, and certainly in His holiness, He has, through His Son, made us holy as well as we have believed on His name, repented of our sins, and found salvation in Him. Uh, Brianna and I were driving back uh, from the Bronx Thursday night, and um, I was singing whatever song was next on the phone, and and this song came up, and so Brianna got a pretty awesome private concert of me singing... (laughs) Uh, With Keith and Kristen Getty, along with um, the master's seminary students, and I think she was thoroughly impressed. Uh, I asked her, I said, We don't sing this in church, do we? She said, We haven't in a long time. And uh, so I I had posted the third verse online, and Gina had commented, We should sing this in church sometime. And I'm like, Great minds think alike. So let's (laughs) sing it this Sunday. And I'm glad we did. And we'll have to throw that into the mix because certainly uh, the truths of that song are powerful. And there' are truths that we can be thankful for. I want to have a word of prayer again this morning before we jump into the Word of God. And as I pray, uh, I ask that you would pray as well. Um, pray, pray that God would speak to our hearts today. Um, if, if we come to church and we sing and we sit through the preaching and we leave this place unchanged, then as I've said before, our time together this morning is pointless. And so as we have sung... Uh, as we have read Scripture and now as we get into the preaching of God's Word, I, I pray that we would desire for God to speak to our hearts and that we would allow Him uh, to do a great work in us. Do you believe today that God wants to do a great work in your heart? We should believe that. And so if we believe it, let's desire it, let's allow the Spirit to speak and so that we can be changed into the image of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. God, you truly are holy. And as we have just sung so many great songs that remind us of so many great truths. God, I pray that that would only bring our heart to the place where we are ready to receive your word. God, I pray that, that we would not be foolish enough to think this morning that our church service, our church services are separated, meaning that the singing is the worship portion and the preaching is, just something where we learn more about You. God, I, I pray today that we would see how these things come together. And when they're done rightly and appropriately with a heart that is being led by the Spirit, everything we do this morning is worship. So God, I pray that as we look to Your Word, that, that we would hear what You would have for us. I'm reminded of the words of Christ echoed several times in the gospels, he that hath ears to hear, let him hear. God, I pray that that we would hear today, that we would allow the spirit to apply the word to our hearts so that when we leave this place, God, we look more like your son, Jesus Christ, than when we came in. That certainly in each of our hearts, there is still work to do, And so in the places that we have been trying to hide or in the things that we have been holding tight, God, I pray that we would let them go today so that you would have preeminence in our lives, so that in all things that we do and say, you would be glorified. We thank you again for the time that we can gather. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. John the Baptist was an interesting fellow. He was known for wearing camel's hair and eating locusts and wild honey. He was a bold preacher who was willing to call out the highest of officials for their wickedness. And this was in part uh, one of the reasons that led to his death by beheading. He was a key player during the intertestamental period of time within biblical history. He was unique. He was noticed. He was used of God and in fact, Jesus says this of John the Baptist in Luke 7, 26 through 28. But what went ye out to see? A prophet? Yea, I say unto you, and much more than a prophet. This is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before thy face, which shall prepare thy way before thee. For I say unto you, among those that are born of women, there is not a greater prophet than John the Baptist but he that is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. John's ministry was unique and actually it was prophesied about long before he ever came onto the scene. One of the places that we see him spoken of uh, is in a writing that was uh, written 400 years, over 400 years before John came uh, to be a living person. And in Malachi 3.1, the Bible says this, behold, I will send my messenger, and he shall prepare the way before, the, before me. And the Lord, whom ye seek, shall suddenly come to his temple, even the messenger of the covenant, whom ye delight in. Behold, he shall come, saith the Lord of hosts. The point of John's ministry, as we've seen in Malachi, was to point people to the Messiah. In this writing in Malachi, we see that both these ministries of John and Christ were in this prophecy. John was the one who would come and prepare the way before the Lord. And Jesus was the one who would come and fulfill everything that was written about him in the Old Testament. And as he came, he would bring with him the new covenant. And so John was interesting to say the least. But the story doesn't end there. John was about six months older than Jesus, and their moms knew each other. And not only did they know each other, but they were related. John and Jesus were cousins. And when Mary went and visited Elizabeth, the Bible says that John leapt in his mother's womb upon hearing her salutation. It seems that the Spirit was working in such a way at this time that before Mary even spoke a thing about the baby inside of her womb, that Elizabeth and John recognized that the favor of God was upon her. I often wonder what their childhood was like. John being the forerunner of Christ and Jesus being the Messiah. Both knew their roles. Both knew that God had something significant for them to do. Both understood that they had a purpose that would last for all of eternity. I wonder, did they spend much time together as kids? I know they lived in different regions, but we also understand that it wasn't a stretch for Mary to go and see Elizabeth. And so as they understood their calling and as God continually worked in their lives, I wonder if they talked about the future even as children who would play together on the streets of their town. As time went on, John grew in his understanding of his calling and he was faithful to it. John took seriously this role that he had been gifted by the Father. From the earliest testimony in his adult life, we see that he was out preaching about the one who was coming. Now as a side note, beginning in January, we're going to make our way through the gospel of Mark, and so we're not going to unpack everything there is to unpack about John the Baptist because I'm probably going to preach through this passage again coming up very shortly. But I do pray that as we go through this section today that our appetites would be wet for this idea of the one who was the forerunner of Jesus Christ, that we would be intrigued by this mission that he lived with and that we would be encouraged to live in a similar way. And so this morning, as we think about Christmas in the Gospel of Mark, the thing that kept coming to my mind was the impact that Christmas made on John the Baptist. It was not a momentary impact that came and went like a summer breeze. But this impact that Christmas or Christ had on John the Baptist transformed his life from before he was born until the day that he died and for all of eternity after that. John was about one thing, as we're going to see this morning, and that was simply this, making Jesus known. The big idea that we'll look at this morning and try to unpack is this, as we go through life, may we come to the same conclusion and live with the same mission as John the Baptist. His life was short, but the impact that Christmas had on him proved to then leave an impact on the world around him as we begin this morning, I want to start with this simple question. Has Christmas made an impact on you? Well, certainly we understand that Christmas Day is impactful. It's impactful to our wallets. It's impactful to our waistlines. And if you have a family, then I would say for all of us that it's impactful on our mental health, right? But in a bigger way, I wonder, has Christmas impacted us in a way that the world sees Christ in us each and every day that we live. Now, before you get nervous, I'm not going to argue this morning that we should all walk around wearing camel's fur and start eating locusts and wild honey for our snacks. But I think we can see through the life of John that he was so consumed with the person of Christ that everything he did, every word he spoke, Every person that he was around, when John left, they could tell that there was something different about him. And so this morning, again, we're only going to see two things, and after last week, maybe you're thinking that's a positive thing. I don't know week from week how long these things are going to be, so just, just we'll take what we can get, right? Last week, uh, Monday when I came in, Matt was like, oh, you did it all in 41 minutes last week, and it's like, wow, that's pretty good, but don't get your hopes up today, So the first thing we see is John's conclusion. And we're going to start at the end of this passage and kind of work our way to the beginning. And as we see John's conclusion, I would ask us to examine our own conclusion uh, when it comes to Christmas and see if we have come to figure out or believe these things that John believed. In verse number seven, I'll read the whole thing for context's sake. He says, and preach saying, there cometh one mightier than I after me, the latchet of whose shoes I am not worthy to stoop down and unloose. Over the last few years, it's become become more evident to me of of how much people are able to draw different conclusions when looking at the same thing. We have seen this in the social realm, the political world, the, the climate conversation, and even the health world. People who view things from seemingly the same perspective can draw drastically different conclusions. As it is true today in that regard, I believe it was also true in Christ's day as well. When people heard about Christ, many didn't know what to think. Some, according to the disciples, thought that Jesus was John the Baptist, risen from the dead, or another one of the prophets. But the disciples believed that he was the Christ, the Son of the living God. Different conclusions when looking at the same person. Some loved him. And some loved to hate him. Some followed him. And some kept their distance. Some were curious. And some were full of spite towards him, his message and his claims. But as John thought on the person of Jesus Christ, the Messiah, his cousin, he realized that there was indeed something different about him. And the conclusion that John drew from His understanding of Christ was simply this, that as I think about the person of Jesus Christ, I realize that I am not even worthy to bend down and undo the straps of his sandals. To us, this illustration that John uses may seem a little bit dramatic, right? Wow, John, like you're going over the top here. You're not even worthy to bend down and unloosen the straps of his sandals? But to the readers in the first century, they would have understand fully what John was talking about. Because as a, a person attached themselves to a well-known rabbi of that day, that rabbi could ask that individual basically to do anything that they wanted him to do. And those students would have been excited to do anything that the rabbi had asked. But there was a line that the rabbi would not cross. And that well-known line was simply this, that they would never ask a student to bend down and take off their shoes. Again, that seems odd to us. What's the big deal about shoes? Well, I don't know if you recognize this, but they didn't have Nikes and and all these nice, uh, fully covering shoes on their feet back in that day, but what did they wear? They wore sandals. And if you've ever worn sandals on a dirt road, you know that the dirt attaches to your sweaty feet very, very quickly. And not only does the dirt attach to your feet, but the smell from your feet I'm sure is disgusting. Noah is 13 now, and when boys become teenagers, things just start to smell bad, right? He's in this phase right now where he he got some new winter boots, he needed them, and all the boys in his class wear their winter boots, their knee-high winter boots, all day to school. Uh, We were at my parents' house yesterday, and my older brother Josh was like, aren't your feet a swamp when you get home from school? And what does a 13-year-old boy say? I don't care. It's what everyone's doing, right? And so as John says this statement that he was unworthy to bend down and loose the straps of the sandals of Christ, he was not being dramatic, but he was making this this estimation or this summation that this was where Christ was. And this was where he was. John was not saying that I wouldn't bend down and loose the straps of his sandals. John was saying, I'm not worthy to even do the most simple or the dirtiest of tasks that Christ would ask me to do. And so as John thought about the person of Jesus Christ, as he thought about his cousin, as he thought about this man that in some ways he grew up with, that this man that he thought about before he even exited his mother's womb, John says this of the person of Christ, I'm not even worthy to unloose the straps of his sandals. John realized who Jesus was. While the rest of the world seemed to draw differing conclusions on the person of Jesus Christ, John was steadfast in the conclusion that he drew. That this is the one that my life is going to be about. This is the one that I will preach and proclaim to any and all who are in earshot of my voice. This is the one who I will spend my days pointing people to. And this is the one that as I think of him, I think of myself at the very same time realizing that I am unworthy of him. Church, I want you to repeat that phrase with me. And I want us to think through this question. Is this actually how we think of ourselves in comparison to Christ? Are you ready? On the count of three, say I am unworthy. One, two, three. I am unworthy. One more time. I am unworthy. You see, I think sometimes in our circles we're quick to proclaim these things with excitement. Oh, I'm unworthy! But I think as John thought about the person of Jesus Christ, the tone in his voice was not one of excitement, but the tone in his voice was one where you could tell he had deeply contemplated these things. And as he spent his days pointing people to the Messiah, the lamb that was slain before the foundation of the world, the words that rolled from his mouth were simply these, I'm unworthy of it." of all his glory, of his worth, worthlessness. Uh, as John was thinking of himself in comparison to the person of Jesus Christ, John made this statement, I am unworthy. I think many times in our days, we, in thinking about the person of Christ, come to a different set of words. The sentiment among many Christians, at least as we look at the way they live their lives, is almost this, that, that Jesus is lucky to have me. Or maybe Jesus came because he was going to be lonely without me. Friend, understand this, that Jesus was not lonely without us. As he spent eternity past in the glories of heaven, in perfect union with the Father and the Spirit, Jesus was not lonely. He had everything needed. And yet as He saw, as God the Father saw our sinful state, He was willing to give His perfect Son so that the unworthy could be made worthy through the greatest sacrifice that was ever given. And so as we think of John's words today, we understand that he believed that he was unworthy. As he thought about the person of Christ, he realized that he was unworthy. As he thought about the sinful deeds that he had done, the thoughts that went through his mind, the fallen state of his soul, John realized that he was unworthy, unworthy of this love, unworthy to serve him, unworthy to even worship him. And yet these, as we saw last week, are the very people that Jesus came to redeem, the unworthy. And if we've been confused up until this point, understand that just as John declared himself as unworthy, friend, let us also understand that this description fits each and every one of us as well. But I wonder if those thoughts are in our minds and in our hearts. And so as John speaks of this Christ, he says, I'm not even worthy to loose the latchet of his shoes I'm unworthy. But John makes another statement in verse number seven that comes before this one that we've just looked at. And it gives us some insight as to why John believed that he was unworthy. The beginning of the verse says this and preach saying there cometh one mightier than I after me. What does John mean by this curious statement, that there one, there's one coming after me that is mightier than me? We understand that John was a mighty man. In his look alone, he was a mighty man. If you saw somebody walking around with, with camel's fur around their body, I'm sure that he was unshaven. He had a beard before beards were relevant, right? All these things pointed to this thing, this idea that John was a manly man as he's dipping his locust in some wild honey, and I imagine that honey dripping down his beard. John was a mighty man. But he wasn't just mighty in appearance. He was mighty in the words that he spoke. When the rest of the world was saying, this is what you need to do in order to earn favor with God, John says, no, you need to repent and be baptized. And when the highest ranking officials of his day were living lifestyles of wickedness and debauchery, the mighty man John called them out for their sins. And so when John makes this statement that there's one coming after him who's mightier than he is, does it mean that Jesus was going to be more of a manly man than John was? Did it mean that he was going to speak a greater truth to higher powers? What does it mean when John says there is one mightier who comes after me? Well, I think as I've thought through this passage this week and and the weeks leading up to this week, this idea was stuck in my mind. What does John mean by the statement, there is one who comes after me that is mightier than I am? I believe with all my heart, John was thinking specifically about the works and the eternal nature of those works that Jesus would perform. John certainly spoke of a mighty work. He, He called people to repentance and their act of repentance was witnessed or evidenced by their, their baptism as they were waiting for the Messiah to come. But that was all a temporary work. But the one who came after John, the one whom John spoke of day in and day out, the one whom John pointed to with everything in his life would come and do a work that would not fade away. And that was the sacrifice for sins as he gave himself on the cross. And so while John was a mighty man, John makes this statement that there's one coming after me who is even mightier than I am. And this is why. As I look at myself and I look at the one who is coming, I realize that I am not worthy to even unloose his sandals. Again, John was not being dramatic in his statements here, but rather he had a right understanding of how holy Jesus was. John was sent from God. And we see that through the Scriptures. But brothers and sisters, understand this. While John was sent from God, Jesus was God. And in that, let our minds be blown away. That very God of very God would come to this earth to live a perfect life, to die in our place so that the unworthy could be forgiven. John's conclusion was that Christ was mightier in every way. And as he thought on the person of Jesus Christ, he realized that he was not even worthy to unloose the Savior's sandals. Isn't it interesting how oftentimes in church cultures, at least in our world, That when it comes to serving we almost think that we're above a certain level oh i've i've done my time in that ministry i've served in that way before i've helped with those programs i've assisted in those things but church understand this that as we serve the savior every opportunity we have whether it's in cutting the grass or straightening the chairs our heart's mentality that resonates from our lips and from our lives should be this, that I am unworthy to do these things. That it's a privilege beyond anything that I could ever earn or deserve. That, that serving my Savior is something that I should never have the opportunity to do. And yet He has made me worthy to do this thing. As this state, these statements are made in verse number 7. We must understand that this was not self-deprecation, but this was an honest conclusion after some self-evaluation. When John understood his sinfulness, when he understood who he was as an individual, John came to the conclusion that he was unworthy. So I would ask us as we wrap up this first point, what is your conclusion as you think about Christmas? Oh, it's exciting. It's exciting until those credit card bills roll in, right? Then it's like, wow, we went overboard once again. It's exciting to think about the time spent with family. It's exciting to, to have special church services. I'm excited this year that Christmas falls on Sunday. I truly am. What a privilege to celebrate the birth of Christ with our brothers and sisters on the day that we have been called to set aside to worship Christ each and every week of the year. It's an honor. It's a privilege. But I pray as we meditate on all these good things that God has given us as His children, that we would live with this mentality that of all these things, we are unworthy. But in His goodness and in His graciousness, God has given them to us. So the first thing we see is John's conclusion. And I would ask again, what conclusion have we drawn as we think about the Christ of Christmas? The second thing that we see is John's mission. In verses 1 through 7, we see that Mark does an excellent job of describing for us in a snapshot glimpse the way that John lived his life. Mark, as we're going to see as we go through this book, uh, was was not one who dwelled a long time on the details, right? I think it's 40 times the word immediately is mentioned in the book of Mark, simply stating first off the fast-paced nature of Christ's ministry, but it's also pointing to the way that, that Mark was wanting to write, that he was just simply showing that Jesus was indeed the Son of God, and as the Son of God, these are all the things that he did. If Mark's wife had written the Gospel of Mark, it probably would have been much longer. You guys didn't appreciate that joke. (laughs) But as Mark wrote the Gospel, we see that he stuck only to the facts. He gave just the things that were needed to be known so that he could point to this reality that Jesus was indeed the Son of God. And so as John lived his life, we see that he came to this grand conclusion that Christ was the greatest thing ever. And that was seen in the way that he lived his life. Friends, it was, it was day in and day out, from the womb until his head was chopped off, that he lived with this lifestyle, that Jesus Christ was indeed Preeminent, that he was the one who was sent from God to be the savior of the world, that he was the one who would give himself as a sacrifice for sins. And since that was true, John lived with this mission that every day of his life he was going to make Jesus known. Now, did John have an easy life? No. No. By very nature of the the words that he spoke, John's life would not have been easy. If you think back to this time when John and Jesus lived, was the whole world excited at this reality that Jesus had come as as the God-man to give himself as a sacrifice for sins? If you're confused, just fast forward to the end of Jesus' life and what did they do to him? They crucified him. And so while Christ was not popular, we understand that John's message was not popular. And in speaking this message day in and day out, John would have faced persecution in ways that we don't comprehend. And while we're not given many details over the persecution that he faced, we understand why, and it's simply this, that the Gospels are not about John the Baptist, the Gospels are about Jesus. And as John lived with this impactful story in his mind that Christ came to save sinners of whom he would agree with Paul that he was the chief, John then lived with this mission that in everything he did, he pointed people to the one who would be the savior of the world. And so in verse number 2, We see that John understood his mission and who he was sent from. It says, as it is written in the prophets, Behold, I send my messenger before thy face, which shall prepare the way before thee. As John lived his life, he lived in such a way that his mindset was this. I'm preparing the way for the one who is coming that is mightier than I am. Everything I do is about preparing the way of the Messiah. And as that was John's mission back then, as he was waiting for Jesus to come in fullness, as he started his earthly ministry, church, understand this, that God has given us the very same mission. Why? Because Jesus is coming again. And if that's true, then we should live with the mission of John the Baptist, that we go before him to prepare his way. And as Jesus came the first time to prove that he was the Savior of the world, we understand that he's coming the second time to prove that he's also the just judge of the world. And we would do well to be about the business of John as he lived with this mission to prepare the way of the Lord. In verse number three, we see what John's job was. He said, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare ye the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Now, as we think of a wilderness, we understand that John was in a literal wilderness, a desolate place where people were coming from the known towns and villages at that time to where he was to hear the message that he was preaching. But can we agree today, without drawing too much of a, a vast conclusion, that we also live in a spiritual wilderness today? We do. That as John lived in a desolate place Speaking of the vegetation and the plants, we live in a desolate place when it comes to the truths of God's Word being believed by everyday people. Just think for a moment about the people that you do life with outside of your church family. Think of the people you work with. Many of them don't believe in Christ. Many of them don't believe the truths of God's word. And that was the very place that John was called to speak the message of the coming Messiah. And I believe with all my heart, that is the very place that we are called to speak the message of the Messiah as well. That we cry in the wilderness, preparing the way of the Lord. As John's life continues in verse number four, it says, John did baptize in the wilderness and preached the baptism of repentance for the remission of sins. John baptized people, but it was not with the baptism that we are familiar with today. But this baptism, in a sense, was preparatory, meaning that it was leading people, pointing people, directing people to this idea that the Lamb of God, who was slain before the foundation of the world, was coming on the scene to take away their sins, not momentarily as we saw in the Old Testament, but permanently once and for all, as His blood cleansed us from all unrighteousness. In verse number five, we see that John's life had an impact. It says this, And there went out unto him uh, all the land of Judea and they of Jerusalem and were all baptized of him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. John's ministry was impactful. And the reason that he was wanting to have an impact on the world that he lived in was because the idea of Christmas, the incarnation of Christ, had had a great impact on his life. He lived with conviction. He served with great passion. He walked with great intention. And all of this sums up for us the mission of John. That his life was going to be about pointing people to the Christ who had come into this world. All that he did. All that he said. In every way that he handled himself, it pointed others to this reality that Jesus was indeed the most important person who had ever walked on this earth. And I would ask us today, do we believe that's true? That Jesus was the most important person to ever walk on this earth? If it's true, then I would ask us, are are we living with the mission of John? Are we using our resources? Are we using our abilities and our gifts and our talents and our influence to point people to this truth that Jesus is the Savior of the world? John's ministry was about one thing, making Jesus known. You say, well, that was easy for John. John had a calling from God, from before the time he was born. In his mother's womb, when he heard the idea that Jesus was coming, he started trying to fight his way out so he could do the work that he was called to do. It's different for John because John lived in a different time. John was a prophet. We're not prophets. John was, you fell in the blank. And as you fell in the blank, I would ask you to stop right where you're at. Because if and when we begin making excuses about why our lives aren't about Jesus, then we're revealing that we have a deep, deep problem within our hearts. You see, the story of John should, in some ways, be very convicting to us. Because I think at times, John lives or lived in a way that we're often not familiar with. Again, I'm not saying that that you need to start wearing the, the camel's hair and eating the locusts and wild honey, but I would say this, that there are elements in John's life, in the way that he lived, in the way that he handled himself, that should be seen in our lives. Who here today would admit that you have trouble even doing daily devotions at times? How can we say our lives are about Jesus? For not even reading his word? I'm not saying that to be mean. I truly am not. But sometimes I think we live with a greater picture of who, in our minds, of who we really are. But that's not what John did, because what did, what did, what did John draw as a conclusion as he thought about the person of Christ? I'm unworthy. I'm unworthy because he is mightier than I am and his works are of an everlasting nature. I'm unworthy to even bend down and unlatch the the latch on his sandals. I'm unworthy. And when John had that mentality, it caused him to live in such a way that everybody around him, they knew what his life was about. That it was all about Jesus. John wasn't the only one who lived with this mindset, in 1 Corinthians 2.2, 2, as Paul was writing to the church at Corinth, we understand he says this, For I determined not to know anything among you, save what? Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Now, does this mean that, that when Paul wrote to them or, or talked to them that he only said the name of Jesus over and over and over again, that he only said Jesus died, was buried and rose again, Jesus died and was buried and rose again? No, that's not what it means, but it means the testimony and desire of Paul's heart was that the church at Corinth would become overwhelmed with this idea that Jesus died for them. And when we become overwhelmed with this idea that Jesus died for us, then the mission of our lives will be to make Jesus, no. You say, well, how do I do that? In, in day in and day out life, how do I do that? Anybody ever talk to you about the weather? It's like one of the, the most well-known ways to have small talk that does not come to any great conclusions other than this. The weather's either good or the weather's bad, right? That, that's the, the brunt of that conversation. So turn the conversation about the weather into a conversation about your Savior. Well, how can I do that? Well, what does Paul say in Colossians? That in Him and through Him and for Him, all things consist. And so He's the one who is in control of the weather. And and you don't have to go into a whole detailed story about uh, the creation account, but we can simply say this, I'm just thankful to God for X, Y, and Z. I'm thankful that that God allowed us to have a beautiful, sunshiny day. I don't know if that's what John did, but it seems that in the way that he lived his life, his mission was to make Jesus known. And I wonder if we take an honest look into our hearts, I wonder how much of our lives are spent doing these things that John did. You see, John wasn't a surface-level believer. But he was a believer who sought to magnify the Savior with his whole life. John the Apostle reveals the heart of John the Baptist in John 3.30 when he makes this statement, He must increase, but I must decrease. In some ways, the, the human nature of John had to have been conflicted, at least As I think about it, I I struggle to see how it wouldn't have been conflicted at times. Because here he was, had this great ministry, people were flocking to him. And when Jesus came on the scene, who did people begin to flock to? To Christ. And John could have been guilty of thinking, man, here I I am, I've done all this work, and now people don't even want to listen to what I have to say. But as we read John's writing, I believe that wasn't the case because as that happened, John said, he must increase and I must decrease. As there were some questions about John and his relationship to Christ and all that was going on, his disciples were were begging an answer of him about how Christ was becoming more prominent and how John was becoming lesser known in his day. And what does John say? he said, think about a wedding. On a wedding day, is it the bridegroom or the best man that the big deal is made over? It's the bridegroom. And John said, in this scenario, I am simply the best man. And as the best man, if you have a good best man, what is that best man to do? He's to make sure that everything is set up so that the wedding can go off without a hit. John said, I'm just the best man. This is not about me. This is not about my feelings. This is not about my comfort. This is not about my success. This is all about Jesus. And as the best man, as the groom rejoices, what does the best man do as well? He rejoices because he sees the excitement in the groom's face. And so John's mission was to make the person of Jesus known. And I wonder today, what is our mission? As we think about the impact of Christmas, when John thought about Jesus, the Savior, coming into this world, he says, he must increase and I must decrease. He says, I'm not even worthy to unlatch his shoes because he is mightier than I am. That was his conclusion. And the mission that he lived with was this, day in and day out, he did everything he could possibly do to make known the person of Jesus Christ. And certainly as we think about our lives, at least as I think about my life, I can see the areas where I have failed in living out this mission. And sometimes in our failures we think, well, why even try? If I didn't do it last week, what means I'm going to do it this week? If I failed in my previous attempts, why do I think I'd have success now? And brothers and sisters, I would encourage you to not think that way. Because as Lamentations tells us, the mercies of God are new every morning. And if the mercies of God are new every morning, then every morning God gives us a new opportunity to live with the mission of John the Baptist that we will make Jesus known. And in the places you fail, get back up and start all over again. And in the places that you have great victory in making Jesus known, Give God all the honor and glory because without Him, you and I wouldn't have the opportunity to do that to begin with. I've shared this story before, but it's very fitting to the text and the idea that we've looked at this morning. Two young Moravians heard of an island in the West Indies where an atheist British owner had two to 3,000 slaves. That slave owner said, no preacher or no clergyman will ever stay foot on this island. If he's shipwrecked, we'll keep him in a separate house until he has to leave. But he's never going to talk to any of us about God. And through with all that nonsense. So two to 3,000 slaves from the jungles of Africa were brought to an island in the Atlantic to live and die without ever hearing of Christ. As these slaves toiled in the sugarcane fields under the burning sun, these Moravians understood that they were doomed to an eternity in hell unless somebody could make it to them. Two young men in their 20s from the Moravian sect heard about this plight and they were willing to go, but not just go. They were willing to sell themselves to this British planter for the standard price of a male slave. The Moravian community from which they were from heard of what these two lads were doing and they made their way to see them off. Some were thinking, was the sacrifice too great? Some were thinking, are their efforts going to be in vain? Will they even be able to make it to the island? Will they have an impact when they get there? And as the housings of the ship had been cast off and were curled up on the pier, and as the ship began to pull away from the dock, these two young men who sold themselves into slavery for the sake of the gospel raised their hands and shouted across the spreading gap, May the lamb that was slain receive the reward for his suffering. What causes two young men to sell themselves as slaves to go to a world where they didn't know if they were going to make it out alive? I would argue that it's because Christmas had an impact on their lives. Because this idea of God becoming man and Him being the Savior of the world impacted them in such a way that when they heard about those who would never have the opportunity to hear about a Savior, they said within themselves, then we'll do anything it takes to make our Savior known. This week as we went to see Ken Baker, we had dinner with them before the service, and we were getting ready to leave. And as Ken was talking about the journey that he had been on and what a difficult process it had been to go from where he was to where he is now, one of the statements that he said struck me. And his words were this, I'm just praying that God would use all the pain that I've been through for the sake of His kingdom. It's back pain. Like we don't pray for God to use back pain for His glory, right? Why? Because we don't want back pain. We just want back pain to be over with. And that's honestly how we treat everything that is uncomfortable in our lives. But as Ken thought through his calling, as he thought through his mission, his conclusion was this, I just want Jesus and the kingdom to advance in the place of That I live. And so I would ask you today what impact has Christmas had on you? We love Luke 2. I love Luke 2. I love the prophecies in the Old Testament about this idea that a Savior was coming. But as I think about my life in 2022, I, I wonder. Am I waiting for his return with the same anticipation that Simeon waited for in the New Testament? As Mary and Joseph brought their baby into the temple, across the way, Simeon saw the, the Christ child come in. And what did Simeon say? I'm ready to die. Why? Because my eyes have seen the Savior of the world. Friends, if if today we have seen the Savior spiritually, meaning we understand the great price that He paid to redeem us who are unworthy, may we also live with the mission that John lived with, that all we do, that all we say, is to make the name of Jesus known. But maybe you're here today, and unlike many of us in this room, Christmas hasn't had an impact on you yet. Maybe you've heard the story of of this guy named Jesus coming into the world. Understand, friend, first off, it's more than a story. It is 100% true that God became flesh, and He wrapped Himself not in adult flesh, but in baby flesh. And He was born of the Virgin Mary so that He would be without sin. And He grew up and lived with perfection. And towards the end of His earthly life, He started a ministry where His whole point was to draw those who were far from Him, very close to Him. And in His greatest act, He sacrificed Himself as He died on the cross for your sins and for mine. And the Bible says that all who believe in this Jesus and repent of their sins can be saved. And those words may be unfamiliar to you. Belief in Jesus and repentance, what does that even mean? Well, belief would just simply be this, an act of faith saying, I understand that I cannot save myself. But there's one who died in my place that can, and it's in him I am placing my faith. And repentance... No, we don't use that word much these days, but what is repentance? Repentance is is basically this, agreeing with God about who you really are, that you're a sinner, and that because of your sin, you have no hope apart from Jesus Christ. You see, John's mission was to bring the Savior into this world, to point to the one who would be the sacrifice for sin. And as we think about Christmas today, that's what we do as well. So if you've never trusted Christ as your Savior, understand this, it's it's not some great theatrical moment. It's not even a moment where things change all around you in in an instance. But it's simply this, you coming to the foot of the Savior, recognizing who you are and recognizing who He is and placing your faith and trust in Him. I wonder, will you let Christmas have an impact on you today? As the angels announced the birth of Christ in the Gospels, we see that they did so with great joy. And what's peculiar about this is that the angels Though they understand what God did, the idea of salvation is lost on them. Why? Because they don't need salvation. They can't attain salvation. And so why then did the angels rejoice when Jesus came into the world? Because they saw God giving the greatest sacrifice that would in turn have the greatest impact. And in turn after that bring God the greatest glory. And so as we closed last week with a Christmas song, I, I want to close again this week by reading some lyrics to a Christmas carol as well. And the Christmas carol is this, Hark the Herald Angels Sing. A couple of the verses say this, Hail the heaven-born Prince of Peace. Hail the Son of Righteousness. Light and life to all He brings. Risen with healing In his wings, mild he lays his glory by, born that man no more may die. Born to raise the sons of earth, born to give us second birth. Hark the herald angels sing, glory to the newborn king. Come desire of nations, come, fix in us thy humble home. Rise the woman's conquering seed, bruise in us the serpent's head. Adam's likeness, Lord, efface. Stamp thine image in its place. Second Adam from above, reinstate us in thy love. Hark the herald angels sing, glory to the newborn king. As the angels sang a song that gave glory to God, As John the Baptist lived a life that brought glory to God, I pray that we would allow Christmas to impact us in a way that our lives would be in everything we do and in everything we say to bring glory to God. And isn't he the one who deserves it? Of course he is. So let's live with the mission as we draw this conclusion, as we think about the impact of Christmas. God, we thank you for this day, again, that we can be in your house. Thank you for your word that we can look to and for the encouragement that we can find within it. God, I know this, this is not a traditional Christmas text, but as John thought on the Savior coming into the world, God, I pray that we too, as we think about this idea of the Savior coming into the world, that we would allow it to impact us in such a way that our lives are about Jesus and Jesus only. God, if there's any here today who have never trusted Christ as their Savior, I pray today that you would draw them to yourself through the power of your Spirit, that they would be uncomfortable in their place right now as they think about the weight of their sin and the gift that you have given in your son, Jesus Christ. And God, for those of us who are saved, may we live for your honor and glory. May we live with the mission of making Jesus known. We thank you again for the time that we can gather this morning. God, may you use what we have looked at today for your honor and glory and for our good as we're transformed into the image of Your Son, Jesus Christ. And it's in His name we pray. Amen. Just stand with me as we close out our service this morning? If you have questions about how Christ can be your Savior, if you have questions about what repentance means and what faith in Christ means, then I would ask you to meet me at the back, and together we'll go through the Word of God and show you how you can be saved. And for those of us who are saved, which to my knowledge is the majority of us in this room today, I pray that we would desire right here and right now for Christmas to have a fresh and new impact on our lives so that as we leave this place, we would say, I am unworthy. I am unworthy, but Christ has made me worthy.